0: All right, church family, so we are really excited to be diving into the book of Revelation with you in a few weeks. Uh, As pastors, we talked and thought it might be helpful to cover some preliminary information uh, just so that we can uh, set our expectations um, in approaching the book and also to help lay some groundwork uh, for our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, I think doing that will allow us, one, to benefit more from the book to better receive what God has for us and to understand it. Uh, but also, um, I think covering uh, what we would say would be a lot of teachy material uh, in this particular context may be uh, maybe wise in that it gives us the opportunity to really focus on preaching the text uh, on Sunday morning. And so with that being said, we're going to try to cover this material in two parts. Part one is going to be uh, more general, high-level information uh, just things to be aware of uh, as we come to the book of Revelation, maybe some observations um, that we would have. And then in part two, we're going to talk through specifically some key features that we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I want to talk first about our attitude toward the book. Now, particularly in the last century, um, with the rise of world wars, emergence of global pandemics, natural disasters... Um, and even the rapid advance of technology, there's been this growing fascination within our culture about the end times. A word we often hear a lot is apocalypse. And so this isn't necessarily endorsement of, of these uh, resources, but we've seen this emerge in books, TV series, and Hollywood movies such as I Am Legend, Last of Us, uh, Planet of the Apes, Avengers Endgame, and even the children's movie WALL-E if you've seen that. Uh, there's There's plenty of others we could mention, but um, even among Christian books, we've we've seen this exhibited in, and even and, uh, this interest exhibited in, uh, and even intensified because of books like the Left Behind series or the late great Planet Earth. So it's not surprising that that people's interest in the Book of Revelation has grown. Um, but it's it's definitely a polarizing book. We have to acknowledge that, um, and a lot of Christians end up taking one of two approaches. They're they're either obsessed with the book. Um, or they're permanently intimidated by it. They treat it as either the most important and relevant book or the most impossible and therefore unnecessary book. And as pastors, our hope and prayer for our church in diving into this book is that we can avoid both of those extremes. Um, the reality is that Revelation is at times a difficult book to interpret. We just have to be honest there. But it also has immediate relevance for us. Um, Not for creating a definite dogmatic timeline of the end of the world, but for helping us to better see our risen Christ with eyes of faith, and for helping us to boldly proclaim his lordship and endure suffering patiently um, as we await his return. So let's talk about some of the background material. Now we're told in the opening verses of the book who the author is and where he's writing from. So it's the Apostle John, who's one of the uh, original 12 disciples, apostles of Jesus Christ, and he's writing from Patmos, which is a sort of prison colony island that he's been exiled to by the emperor Domitian for preaching the gospel. Now, the time at which this was written, this was, it, was, it was a period of intense persecution for the early church. And there's some debate about exactly when the book was written, because some folks will say, yeah, I think this is probably being written in the 60s um, AD, but a lot of interpreters, most Uh, Scholars estimate, um, I'd say at least a majority of scholars estimate during, uh, the book was written during uh, the 90 to 180 um, time period. And John's immediate audience are the seven churches in Asia, which is not surprising given the fact that he's actually said to have relocated to that area. um, Ephesus specifically and established the Christian community there before his exile. I think he may have also come back there at a later point. Um, but I want to talk about, now I want to talk about genres, right? When we talk about the word genre, uh, what we're talking about is the kind or type of literature that's in view when looking at a particular book. Now, um, we see this outside of scripture, obviously, um, you know, things like mysteries or fables or biographies or, you know, poetry, science fiction, all of those things are different types of literary genres. But within scripture, uh, we also have different types of literary genres that are, um, and and the type of literary genre will help us to determine how to interpret and understand that book. Um, So within scripture, we have historical narrative, poetry, parable, epistle, etc. But one of the things that's really unique about the book of Revelation is that it actually combines Couple different types of literary genres. So one, it's an epistle, right? It's a letter, because John's writing to seven churches. He has very specific messages to those seven churches that we see in the the first few chapters. But even within the opening verses, we also see that number two, it's prophetic literature, meaning it speaks in at least in part about future events, And, and John says that it's 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 prophecy. But finally, apocalyptic literature, right? Um, so it's an epistle, it's prophetic literature, and it's also apocalyptic literature. Now, you might be familiar with those first two types, but less so with apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is, is related to prophetic literature. Um, it's also concerned um, with, with future things uh, very often. But there's an assumption with apocalyptic literature that things are being seen or revealed – From a heavenly perspective, in order to provide a better way of looking at those things in the here and now, right? So, God's giving us His heavenly perspective on it so that His servants um, can see things from His perspective uh, in the here and now. But what's unique about um, this revealing is that it often happens through bizarre otherworldly imagery and symbolism. That's worth noting here that the narratives or visions within apocalyptic literature are not necessarily to be understood chronologically. So that's one event following another in the way in which it's laid out in the text. So just, just to give an example uh, and to further clarify, we see a phrase that John repeats in Revelation, this, and I saw, or after this I saw, or then I saw, But we don't have to assume that each of those visions is being laid out in chronological order, or to say it a different way, when John uses phrases such as, and I saw, or then I saw, one way to understand that is that he's seeking to capture the order in which he saw the visions, not necessarily the exact order in which those events symbolized by the visions will take place. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a few moments. But to get back to our early point, when we when we, when we think of Revelation, we often think of it as being veiled or covered in mystery. But John actually calls it an apocalypse, which literally means a revealing or an uncovering. I think we... Um, We can acknowledge that there's certainly an element of of mystery that remains, but Jesus through the apostle John gives a promise of spiritual blessing that's actually contingent on our ability to keep what's written in it. So we have to know or understand what is written in order to keep it. Therefore, I think we can have confidence that understanding the book is assumed and possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, according to Revelation 1.1, this book contains a revealing or a revelation of Jesus Christ. So how are we to understand that? What does that mean that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ? Does it mean that John is reve- or Jesus is revealing himself or does it mean that he is revealing something else to John? And I would argue that it's actually both. Right, Christ by His Spirit is revealing to John not only a relevant prophetic message, right? Because we see in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon play, take place. So He is revealing to John some events, some things that are about to happen. But, but we also see. Um, a revealing of the person of Christ himself in in multiple prophetic visions or apocalyptic visions, I should say, throughout the book. And these visions are given in order to strengthen John and all of his fellow Christians in the midst of tribulation. So one of the reasons that we, we see those graphic visions uh, throughout the book, including the one of, of Christ enthroned as the Son of Man in chapter 1 and then the conquering lion slain lamb in Revelation 5, is that God is um, strengthening the faith of his servants to endure. The, the risen Christ is strengthening the, the faith of his servants to endure in the midst of really, really difficult um, trials and tribulations. So there are those messages, right, to the seven churches, very specific messages. There are a, There is a sense in which there are certain events that Jesus is highlighting, hey, these things are going to happen, but he's also revealing himself. He's also revealing himself. And we'll, we'll talk about that more uh, in a bit as well. So how is this book laid out? Well, it does include um, as we would expect in an epistle an introduction and conclusion. Um, but if, if, if we, if we want to look at things, um, at a high level, there's a couple different ways that we might understand the structure of the book. You do have these specific messages to the seven churches. Um, and then, um, this vision of, of God's heavenly throne room, this, this, um, this vision of God, Jesus on his throne, which we see in, in chapters 4 and 5. But then after that, we see these cycles of 7 in chapters 6 through 10, the second part of chapter 11, and then chapters 15 through 16. And then and then following that, or mostly following that, we see in in, in the first part of chapter 11, chapters 12 through 14, and then chapters 17 through 22, a series of symbolic images or narratives. Um... I, if you're like me and you appreciate seeing things visually, I really, really encourage you to watch the Bible Project videos. It's a two-part video on the book of Revelation. I think they do a really, really good job um, trying to walk us through uh, the structure that John has with the book and even and the logic behind it. Um, I would note if you do watch that, um, I would disagree with their conclusion in one part. Uh, I think it's significant in chapter about Jesus's robe in chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 21. So they, they think that the blood on Jesus's robe is Jesus's own blood and that that particular section is not depicting a bloodbath, so to speak, of Jesus's enemies. But if we, if we go to Isaiah chapter 62, excuse me, chapter 63, verses 2 through 3, Isaiah would actually seem to disagree with that. So Isaiah prophesies there this same event asking in verse two, this question, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And in verse three of chapter 63 of Isaiah, the answer is given, and this is presumably by God himself. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So it seems that what's happening there in in chapter nineteen, verses eleven through twenty one, uh, when Je- uh, excuse me, John's giving this uh, this vision of Jesus, is he's connecting the dots. Right? He sees something, but he's connecting the dots back to. Uh, Isaiah 63. So that's one way of looking at the structure of the book. I think a more helpful way, uh, maybe a simpler way, is to see the three main visions or appearances of Jesus Christ in the book and then to see how all that follows relates back to that. So we had this vision of Jesus in chapter 1, this vision of him as the Son of Man, and then we have this vision of him again in chapter chapters four through five of him as the slain lamb, um, conquering lion. And then in chapter 19, we have this vision or appearance of Jesus as, as a victorious king who's ushering in his kingdom. And I think that those visions are really critical for our understanding of what follows. So I, I think that that may be uh, the simplest and most helpful Uh, approach to our understanding of the structure of the book. But we'll come back to that as well at the very end, I think, of our two-part series. There are also these different interpretive lenses through which we may read Revelation. So these interpretive lenses are described by terms such as preterist, futurist, historicist, idealist, eclectic. So those are all um, very um, scholarly terms. Um, that really represent different views or ways of looking at the events of revelation um, so just to just to kind of briefly define them or describe them for you preterism uh, largely holds that most of the events of revelation have taken place in the past, so past fulfillment uh, is is what preterism uh, how preterism would understand uh, the events of revelation. Um, futurist um, view of the book would hold that most of John's visions are primarily of future events that are yet to come. Um, Some folks believe there's actually a degree of gradual fulfillment from the time John was writing until Christ's return, and that would be the historicist approach or um, progressive fulfillment. Um, So historicist approach and progressive fulfillment kind of go hand in hand. And then finally, some people believe that the visions depict, symbolize that which occurs throughout the entire church age. In other words, there's this idea of repeated fulfillment in the book of Revelation, and that's the idealist approach. There is another approach which is more of a hybrid approach, and it's called it's called the eclectic approach, and so it actually combines different elements. Of the other views. But the point of bringing all that up is there are actually positives and negatives to each of these approaches. But whatever lens we bring to the book of Revelation, we need to be able to account for the fact that this book was intended to have immediate pastoral relevance for the early church as well as the historic or universal church, like all Christians until Christ returns. As we've said already, John says right from the outset the the prophecy is given to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, as we know, soon, according to God's perspective, can mean several thousands of years, right? For Jesus says in Revelation 22, 7, I am coming soon. But in, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, John also says, Uh, or is told, I should say, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are about to take place after this. So that leaves the reader with a kind of present as well as a future expectation uh, of the fulfillment of the things that we see there. And that's how we're able to say that and affirm that this book is both timely, but it's also timeless, Now, not all, but a lot of the controversy within the book of Revelation, or should say with the book of Revelation, revolves around, A, who will experience the great tribulation mentioned in chapter 7, which which we won't get into, but B, what or when is the 1,000-year period referenced in Revelation 20? Um, and there are subsets of each of these different views, but the three major millennial views, so again, we're just touching on that um, on that second part there um, around the 1,000-year period of Revelation 20, but the three major millennial views are premillennialism, which says that Jesus will return before the millennium to defeat and destroy the beasts and the false prophets. Satan will be bound for 1,000 years, during which time believers will reign with Christ on the earth. After this Satan will be released, will assemble an army and then will finally be defeated. Now this view carries a more pessimistic tone. Again, this is this is this is how I think about it, but I think that this view carries a more pessimistic tone about the state of things prior to Christ's return. And as such, it seems to have been the prevailing view though certainly not the exclusive view, of many within the church, the early church, and at other times of great persecution for Christians uh, within church histories, which makes sense, right? When things aren't going well, um, it would be easy to take Revelation and say, um, to take a more a pessimistic approach about what we see there. Uh, and that's not to say that people who take the premillennial view are just interpreting it through their experience, but um, I, I do think that um, that those things often will go hand in hand, um, but the second second type of a uh, second millennial view that um, is quite common is um, and has been quite common throughout church history is post millennialism. Um, even though it might not be as common uh, presently, this view takes the approach that Jesus is going to return after the thousand years, which is sort of a golden age of, of God's blessing. Um, and the church's strength on the earth that begins once all the earth has heard the gospel. What's interesting about this view is that it actually see us as the early church. Um, one thing to note about post-millennialism is it carries an optimistic tone about the state of things pr- prior to Christ's return. In other words, there will be some minor setbacks along the way, but the mustard seed that is the kingdom of God will slowly but surely grow into a great tree, uh, Jesus is gradually bringing the entire earth into submission to Himself through the church's preaching of and living out the gospel. And then finally, the final millennial view is is amillennialism. And um, amillennialism sees the thousand years as a symbolic time frame between Jesus's ascension and His return, when deceased believers reign with Jesus in heaven. This view carries a more realistic tone, I would say, about the state of things prior to Christ's return. It holds that the world will wax worse and worse as we wait for Christ's future return, but that simultaneously Christ's mission will advance and the kingdom of God will grow until the glory of of God covers the dry land as the waters cover the sea. And different of these millennial views have prevailed at different points within church history for different reasons, Uh, And each of these has been held by various individuals that we might consider fathers in the faith or champions of orthodoxy. So regardless of which view we come to on this, we should hold it humbly and charitably. This is a third tier issue. Okay, so there's one final thing I want to say here about the book of Revelation, and this is with regards to the various images and themes that we see there. Now, there's two temptations we want to avoid as we look at those images and themes, on the one hand, we want to avoid the temptation to hyper-focus on specific details. That's how we end up missing the forest for the trees as we look at Revelation. But worse, we could also end up assigning some kind of imaginative meaning to the text that was never intended by John and by God. Um, but we also, on the flip side of things, right, don't want to ignore the details and the symbolism assuming it's just, it's all too cryptic and mysterious for us to figure out. Because part of our job as the reader is to seek to understand those images and themes within their biblical context, in other words, in light of the story of Scripture. Uh, there's a theologian named Gerhardus Voss who describes the first couple chapters of Genesis as this seed that develops throughout the rest of Scripture into a tree in full blossom. And then picking up on that idea, pastor and Old Testament professor Jonathan Gibson says that all the DNA of biblical revelation then is contained in that seed of the first three chapters of scripture. So then all of the rest of the Bible is just watching that organically grow and develop and come into full blossom in the New Testament and ultimately in the book of Revelation. In other words, those images and themes that begin in Genesis and the earlier parts of scripture They're all moving and heading somewhere. And the book of Revelation tells us where, right? It tells us how those images and themes find their ultimate fulfillment. So the book of Revelation is not intended by John to be this standalone book independent of the rest of Scripture, right? John's expectation is that his listeners, his readers, are going to be hearing in what he says— the language and the images and the promises of the rest of Scripture, right? And that's going to inform and enrich and aid their understanding of the message he's intending to communicate. And so that's how we have to approach Revelation. Uh, We have to bring our understanding of the Old Testament with us in order to fully appreciate and benefit from what God has for us in the book of Revelation.